It's all good. Good morning. Yeah, let's just let's just take this this way. We'll just meander this here. Oh, they're both mixed up. Perfect. Oh well. Okay, that'll be fine. First things first. Uh, we have a new sound person learning. Thanks, Bev. She's doing great. You can hear me, so that's all that really matters. No, I'm just kidding. That sounded really bad. You could hear everything that needed to be heard this morning. So that's good. Uh, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy, we're, we're going to finish up chapter 2 here this morning. Let me just say right from the beginning, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a rough text. This is a hard one. Um, it's complicated. It's it's difficult to understand, and there's, there's a wide variety of interpretations out there. So I'm going to do my very best to help us uh, see this as biblically as we can, uh, but know that I'm not claiming that I'm the last word on this. Scholars disagree. Um, theologians disagree. I, I have friends of mine who are godly men and women that, that disagree with me. Uh, and so if you disagree with me, that's okay, as long as you disagree with me because you think the Bible teaches something different, not just because you think I'm wrong. Uh, everything needs to go back to Scripture, and we're going we're to do that this morning. So let me pray, because frankly, I, I, I need the uh, wisdom this morning. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you that we get to worship you. You are awesome. You are incredible. You have created us. You have sent Jesus to the cross so that we can find forgiveness from our sins so that we might enter into relationship with you. There is no greater gift. And so this morning as we study this passage this morning that is, that is complex and difficult, would you give us ears to hear? Would you break down any walls that we have? Or, or if we read something in this text here and, and immediately have our defensive walls, that would you just help us to to just stop and to just see what this says and see why it says what it says. So God, reveal truth to us here this morning through your word. Amen. I just have to unplug this because you, you can't hear it, but it's going to drive me nuts. There we go. So if you're visiting this morning, you picked a doozy to visit with. Uh, we've been going through 1 Timothy uh, a little bit at a time, and so... Basically, how, we're, how I'm going to explain this is, is this is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has written to Timothy. Timothy has been left in, in the city of Ephesus. He's been left there to kind of be the pastor of this church and to, and to kind of restore some order because some things were, were happening that, that Paul says are not good and that need to be corrected and they needed some direction and guidance. And, and as we're about to see next week, there's, there's going to be a plurality of elders, of leaders coming in that Timothy's going to appoint so that the church can grow the way that God's intended it to be. And so this, this letter, scholars often call it a mentoring manual or a discipleship manual between Paul and Timothy. And in our church, we've decided that this is one thing that really we really want to focus on is how can we disciple one another because discipleship is the way that we're going to grow and we're going to become effective and we're going to use our gifts and our abilities to the mandate which we've been called, which is to go into the world and make disciples. And so the way that we're going to do that is next week, uh, well, actually, 
starting this week is everyone who's on the, the church board. So in your bulletin, you see a list of people that have various roles in the church. Every single one of them is going to be partnered very strategically with somebody. And they're going to get an email in the coming days here stating now it's their responsibility that once a month they're going to meet with these people and they're going to pray with them and read scripture together and, and just live life. And it'll be messy sometimes and it'll be smooth sometimes and it'll be difficult sometimes and it'll be great others and and that's that's what we're going to start doing and then by the end of Timothy the goal is that every single person so if you're sitting here and and you live in Banff you're going to be partnered with somebody to live this life with so that our lives uh can move beyond just uh individualistic but into community into church and into discipleship so that's the goal so I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of context this morning just because this is a long one. But for sake of time, last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 and specifically dealt with prayer. Moving forward from that, oh, and I should mention this too, is next Thursday, I, I was teaching Bev the sound, so I wasn't listening to Ernie. Sorry, Ernie. Did, did he mention next Thursday evening we're going to have a prayer meeting? Here at the church. I don't think I got that in. Next Thursday evening, all the churches of Banff are going to gather here at 7 o'clock in the evening, and we're going to pray. Uh, there's a number of people that have family and friends in, in other churches that are being affected by the coronavirus. And so we've decided we're just going to gather together, and we're just going to pray as a community. So 7 o'clock next Thursday evening, if you are free, please come down for that. So anyway, this text last week talked about prayer, and so we're trying to model that. But the whole context of chapter 2 is instructions in corporate worship. So that's going to become very, very important for the verses that we're about to read in verses 8 to 15, because there's a context to this. And there's some things in here that, as I read, sound incredibly harsh and sound, uh, well, you'll see, <laughs> you'll see. What I'm trying to say is that there's a context to this, and I'm going to try and explain that as we go through it. Whenever you come across something in the Bible where, where you hear something, go, hold on, that seems crazy, or, or that doesn't seem consistent with what's taught elsewhere in the Bible, then we have to slow down. We have to study that passage, because if we believe, which our church does from a leadership standpoint, from, a, from the AGC standpoint, that this you have in your hand, the Bible, is God's word written to us, that every part of it is from him that it's inspired and that's, that it's not man's word, but that it's God's. And so if there's something in it, we go, hold on, this doesn't make sense, we, we can't agree with that, or at face value it seems to contradict, then we're, we're misinterpreting it. And so then we need to study it to come to conclusion what's correct with the whole narrative of Scripture. So let me read this. I promise I'm going to deal with everything that, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm going to try and deal with everything that is in here. So verses 8 to 15 says this. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not promote a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Simple, no problem, right? Good, Lance. Sometimes you read things and you're like, Paul, what are you thinking? Like, like this, 
this is a, it's, it's hard. So, so let me deal with, there's four issues that we're going to deal with. The first two are much more simple. The second two are quite complex. First issue that we're going to deal with is prayer again, because there's a specific context here. And the reason I've lumped this verse 8 in uh, with this section rather than the previous, the, uh, scholars debate where 8 should kind of be. Now remember, when this is written, it wasn't written with verses. We added those verses so that we could kind of organize things a little bit more. And so sometimes these sections kind of get mixed up. But I, I think this should be in this section rather than the previous. But it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. So we're going to deal with prayer just really quickly. We're going to deal with clothing really quickly. Both those two are not complicated issues, I don't think. Then we're going to deal with submission, uh, teaching, and headship as, as kind of that third one. And then... Salvation through childbirth, uh, seemingly, in the fourth one. And, and that, that one's complicated as well. So, uh, at the beginning, so he says, I desire then. So that, right, ties back to previously. Because of what he's taught us about prayer, because of what he said about how important it is, and if you remember the last week, there were a couple of issues that we looked at with this idea of prayer. One is that we would understand that ultimately what God's after is the salvation of all men. That's what God wants. God wants everyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's his goal. That's his desire. And so when we pray, that should be the priority in our prayer. So if we find somebody that we know that is disease or illness or a death in the family, and we want to pray for comfort or healing or those things, those are good to pray for. But they always ought to point us to the fact that the most important thing is not their physical well-being or the emotional well-being, but their spiritual well-being. That's paramount. So that should always be the focus in that, and then the other things alongside of that. Not to say that God doesn't care if you have disease or if you have lost someone in your family. It's simply saying God cares more about your salvation than your comfort. God does care about your comfort, and let, let me say that clearly. God does care about your feelings, about your emotional health, all those things. But spiritually is most important. And so in that context is... Think first of the salvation of men and then realize that, that Christ is the only mediator between God and man and that he is fully sufficient and that only through him do we find salvation. So pray with that in mind. So he says, because of this, I desire then that every man should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So when you read a verse like that, we go, okay, everyone should pray. That's no problem. We can all get on board with that. When's the last time we corporately held our hands up uh, as we prayed. Like, clearly we don't do that very often, if ever. So, so the question is then, so why is one part of it something that we do and we adhere to, and why is one other part of it something that we seemingly ignore? Now, sometimes we can use the argument, well, uh, if it's in the Old Testament that it's Old Covenant and Christ came to fulfill that, and some of those Old Covenant laws we now understand differently, but we can't do that in the New Testament because it's different. The New Testament is written post-Christ, specifically Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy after the death and resurrection of Christ. So we can't use that argument. So, so scholars will say, well, there's a certain element of everything that is contextual. And that's true. Everything is spoken uh, within a context. So when we read through 1 Timothy, what's really helpful to do is read through the history of the early church in Ephesus. Read about the city, what was happening at that time, and, and the various things that were going on, because everything written was written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific reason. However, because we believe that this is God's word spoken, not just in a moment, but as Ernie just kind of mentioned, to God, time is this almost irrelevant concept, is 
all of these things written no matter how long ago, there's truth in that that apply to us as well. And so then we have to determine what things are, are cultural versus what things are, are commands or imperatives or things given to us that, that are not just for the original hearers, but are for us as well. What is he saying that is you should do this, and then he's adding some things of explanation in by way of how to do that. So in this verse, we look at it and we go, well, the command is every, I desire that in every place that men should pray. That's the imperative. That's the command. All men are to pray. Now, is that saying that only men are to pray and women aren't to pray? That's the assumption of some scholars. I, I, I don't think that's the point here. And, I, and I'll explain this in just a minute. I think the contextual culture aspect of this is lifting hands, which I think is really, when you look at the narrative of Scripture and you read all these times this is talked about, the idea is in unity. That together, that we become united in one mind, one body, that when we pray, we pray united as one, that we're declaring the same things together, and this is a, is a, is a posture of unity. So can we kneel and pray? Does that go against what's said here? Well, certainly we can kneel and pray. Certainly we can stand and pray. Certainly we can, we can walk and pray, and we should pray. In fact, Paul says in a different place, pray without, right? So at all times. So he's giving an example here, saying lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Don't get sidetracked. Now remember the context. Is there's teaching that's been brought into the church in Ephesus that Paul says you, you have to deal with this. It's divisive, and it's causing corruption to happen within, and you have to deal with it for the health of the body of the church. So when you pray, lift your hands united together without quarreling and anger, and become united in purpose together. Now, you can take a different approach, and you can say that some of these things are just, they just don't apply to us. And, and there's a theologian I came across this week that said this, his name is A.T. Hansen. He said this, Christians are under no obligation to accept Paul's teaching on women. That's it. That's the whole quote. So he's literally saying, this text here does not apply to you today. Don't worry about it. So where does that end? Like when we read in Scripture something we disagree with or something we don't like, then we can go, well, that was just for them. I'm just going to close the Bible, throw that, or rip that page out. It doesn't apply to me. Where does that end? That means I get to choose what's true. I get to choose what's right. So rather, when I come across something like this, where I read something, where I go, oh dear, I don't, I don't like that, or I don't understand that, instead of just taking that easy cop-out answer of, I don't have to accept what Paul teaches here. Now remember, Paul is an apostle given apostolic authority from God to write this, and so when he says, I desire then, these are God's words, not his. So who gets to decide? God does. And so if God's written them, then we need to hear them. So I'm going to take this example or this text as meaning God means it to be in the Bible. God wants it there for us. So instead of throwing it out, go, how can we interpret this correctly? John Stott wrote this about this verse. He says, always and everywhere, the men are called to pray in holiness and love. But their bodily posture as they do so, whether standing, kneeling, sitting, clapping, 
uh, clapping hands or raising arms, all of those may vary according to culture. I think that's a very simple way to understand that. Is it saying that men only are to pray? Well, again, that goes against what Paul just taught in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about how men and women should pray and gives specific instructions in that. So he's not saying women shouldn't pray. In fact, if you look at at verse, uh, sorry, verses 1 to 7 that we looked at last week, is he's talking about the importance of prayer within the congregation. And so he's saying, and this is why 8, I think, is tied in in this section, is because in 14 and 15, we're about to get go back to Genesis 1, how God created and, and God's design in creation. Is He's saying, men, you are to take the lead spiritually in the church and in your home. It is your responsibility. That doesn't excuse women. That doesn't say women are not called to pray. He's simply making a command to men at this time saying, you are to do this. Likewise also, actually let me read to you what Gordon Fee says in this. He says it's not that only men should pray, and he's also not saying that men should pray, right? He's giving a command, uh, or that they do it with raised hands, but that they should pray with holiness and without anger or controversy. So holiness is, is the goal here. Verse 9, second issue. Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. So again, sounds like he's saying, okay, women, you shouldn't worry about your appearance. Why is he singling out women, and why is he not dealing with men? Is he talking about um, dressing nicely, or, or what? And so we have to figure that out. Now, we went through First Peter a number of months ago, and Peter talked about a similar thing, and, and so I explained that there, but, but I'll do that again here. Is the issue is meant to be that when we worship God, and, and you see this with Jesus dealing with various people all through the New Testament, he's not concerned with the exterior, he's concerned with the interior. Right? He he goes as far as calling Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, right? And he says you're 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 filled with dead men's bones. You're, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is filthy. He uses all these kind of different uh, examples to show that he's saying it's not what's on the outside that matters, but what's on the inside. Now, we can make an argument that what's on the outside is reflective of what's on the inside in a natural way of how we grow, but we can also make the argument that you can fake a lot of stuff. We can pretend. We can say, well, I think if I dress or act this way, I'll trick everyone into thinking, and then everything will be okay. Well, Jesus has no time for that with the Pharisees. Um, and so he's saying, and what Paul's saying here, is what's on the inside is of, of significance, not parading what's happening on the outside. So in this context, you have the city of Ephesus, which is um, home to the temple of Artemis, which is in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the world. In that uh, temple, there was much worship to various Greek gods, and, and that was kind of the hub of Ephesus. So that's, if people came to Christ, Predominantly, they came saved out of that. And what we read about in history there is that the worship that happened in the temple was this over-sexualized uh, kind of worship in which it was all about parading uh, man's beauty and posturing ourselves, all these kind of things. And, and this is the context which they have been saved out of. So many scholars kind of look at it and say, well, that's what Paul's saying here is that these women, they've been saved out of that, but they're going to this new church now Christ being, being their Lord and Savior and understanding that, but having a hard time letting go of cultural things that is how they've lived up to this point. And I'd say that's probably true, but I think that's 
that's stretching to make the text say clearly what it already says and, and trying to over-contextualize it. I think it's just a simple fact of saying, if you wake up in the morning and you go, man, I need to go to church, but I have to be the center of attention. I got to look so good that everybody recognizes me so that I get compliments, so that I get built up. Then it's not about God. It's not about worshiping him. It's not going to gather together for his name. It's about us. And so when you come to church and, and you see, like, I wear a tie, at least until 30 seconds after I'm done preaching. And, um, and it's not so that it's like, oh, so that everyone sees the tie. It's, it's when I get ready in the morning and when I'm entering into this mindset and trying to get ready is I'm trying to be reflective of what's happening inside of me. And I find that that helps me prepare and get my mind in the right place so that I'm prepared to do what I need to do. If I woke up in a bed, rolled out, and I said, God doesn't care what I wear, so it doesn't matter. That, in my, that's true, but that would just be an excuse for me. That would just be, I just don't want to put any effort into anything, and I don't care what anyone else thinks. And, and that's that reality where it's like, should you care what other people think? Uh, no, but yes, right? Because you've got to respect other people and care about other people. If you don't respect or care about them, so that's why you don't care what they think, well, that's not good either. But if you only care what they think, then that's not good either. So this is that, that battle that we have that happens inside, and that's what Paul's trying to deal with. Don't don't just braid your hair and put all these pearls and all these things so that people look at you because it's not about you anymore. It's about Christ. Let that be the focus. All right, one and two, easy. Let's move on. Now it gets weird. No, I shouldn't say weird. I think, I think God wrote this for a reason. Let me say this too. I missed this. At the very end of verse 9 here, pardon me, verse 10, he has this little, if you have the ESV um, or other more literal translation, you have this little hyphen, then it says, with good works. So, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works, is what Paul's arguing here, and this goes to all of us, is that as we grow in our faith, those faith are meant to lead to what? Good works. Everything is meant to draw us closer to Christ and then how we act and how we live demonstrates what's happening in our hearts. Right? So Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.16, right? He said, let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Right? So our works are not meant to reflect to us. They're meant to reflect back to him. So as we grow the way we live, the way that we dress, the way that we conduct ourselves in corporate worship, the way that we talk to people, all of those things lead to good works. Okay. Now, depending on your translation here, you'll have something about submissiveness, and then you'll have something about whether uh, the woman is to remain quiet, or some translations have she is to remain silent. That sounds even more harsh. Um, Trying to grasp and understand this without going back to the beginning of the Bible, which is why I think Paul does that, puts us in a lot of hot water. When you read something like, she is to remain quiet, red flags should go up, because that seems like, why is Paul saying that? In 1 Corinthians 5, and in Titus 2, which we don't have time to read this morning, but Paul talks, he's written both of those letters, and he talks in both those sections about women in corporate worship praying and prophesying and doing it in the correct manner. So, if we have two that are for the affirmative and then all of a sudden one here that's for the negative, in all likelihood, probably we're misunderstanding what this is saying. 
So I don't think Paul is saying that women shouldn't talk, and I, and I don't think he's trying to over-contextualize and go, in this culture, because these women are being saved out of this, this over-sexualized worship, because of what's happened, they are no longer allowed. Now you are supposed... I don't think that's what's happening. When he goes back to Genesis, I think what matters is God's trying to define for us, again, that God has created men and God has created women, and God, this is maybe shocking to you, God has created us differently. Anybody married? Is your wife a little different than you? Is your husband a little different than you? Uh, personalities might be similar, but the reality is, is men and women are created differently. And when we look through to Genesis 1, which is why he goes back to here, we see that this is part of what we call the creative order. God created Adam, and then God created Eve, and God gave commands to Adam very specifically. And all of those things go through all of history, and they no longer become cultural context given at a specific time because they happened in the creative order where God said, this is good. This is how God's created. This is his purposes. So uh, a few years ago, I had this question from, from our church in Winnipeg about uh, the roles of men and women in church. And so I'm going to give you a resource. This is a really good book. It's called Reclaiming Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And it's by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. An excellent resource on there. There's two predominantly taught views within the church. There are, there are other outlier views that are either extreme on one side or the other. Neither of those are helpful, but there's two in the middle. One is egalitarianism and one is complementarianism. And you have these two views. So the egalitarian view is not one that the AGC holds or that I hold, but I do have friends that are pastors that hold this. I have plenty of other Christian friends that hold this. I, I disagree with them, but I'm not trying to say that that means that somehow they're these immature Christians that, that don't know their Bibles. I'm saying we differ in interpretation. But I'm going to explain to you why I think complementarianism makes more of a godly or a biblical perspective than egalitarianism. The first one, egalitarianism states that men and women are created equally under, uh, they're, they're created in the image of God with the same value and the same dignity and the same worth. That part's great completely agree. Then it says that, and there is no distinguishing gender roles that, that are meant to be upheld in scripture today. So the argument is that everything was contextual to that environment or that culture at that time. Complementarianism also starts the same thing, that men and women are created in the image of God, both equal, both the same value and the same dignity, but created with different roles for different purposes that they're complementary to one another. That's the way that I interpret Scripture. And again, because he goes back to Genesis, I'm going to explain a little bit back in Genesis because I think this matters. I think this shows this is how God's ordained it and created it. And yes, sin has come and messed some of that up. But we're going to show that before sin actually entered, this existed, and you'll see it. Let's, let's just flip there. Trying to over-explain something that's probably not as complicated as I think it is. Yet. So, God creates, right? God creates men. God creates women. God creates well. He creates everything. Um, you go into chapter three, and then you have the fall. Okay, so this is where we're going to look at. So you have Adam and you have Eve in the garden, and all of a sudden Satan's in the mix now, right? It says chapter. 
chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did you actually say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? So he's deceiving her already, which Paul says. So she kind of clarifies and serpent kind of argues back. And so in verse 6, we see when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, I always wondered about that verse as a kid. Is Why is Eve the scapegoat here for humanity? Why is Adam just this little tag-along? She gave some to him, he was there with. And then when you start to read now in 1 Timothy and he starts to flesh that out a little bit, it starts to make a little bit of sense. Is when God creates Adam, God creates this idea of headship, that Adam was created first in the creative order, not better, not with more value, but he was created first and his role was to now care for and to protect Eve. So in Ephesians chapter 5, this is the number one passage that Shayla and I use in premarital counseling. It talks about love and respect and how uh, men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and women are to submit to and respect their husbands. And this goes back to here again because we're created differently as my role as the man in my home is to recognize that God has called me to lead my family spiritually. That's not to say that Shayla is unqualified or incapable of doing that. She's more than capable. And some of you may be in that position where you're a single mom and you don't have a husband who can fulfill that role. So that's just a reality that then you with your children, now you have that role to fill. But in God's creative order, think of it this way, is in, in God's design for family, God has desired that there would be a mom and that there would be a dad and that they would work together complementarian wise to speak truth into the lives of the children. That's God's goal and God's design. Can a single parent successfully raise their child to love Christ? Absolutely, because God's a God who can redeem anything. But God has a specific mold of how he desires things to work. Family is of vital importance to God. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden now if if you're on your own with your children, that you are living outside of God's will and, and, and you're being disobedient. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God has a, a perfect scenario. And if we can make that scenario happen, then that's the way that God has ordained us to be. So God creates men first and he says, he says Adam, you are to protect and you're going to care for Eve. You're, you're going to, in some senses, be responsible for her. And so when, the Satan, when Satan, the serpent, is there and he's, he's tempting Eve and he's deceiving Eve, what is Adam not doing? The very role in which God has ordained him to do. Now, I don't have a biblical concept for this, but this logically follows. Is I think this is why the vast majority of men struggle with apathy. Because we already see it modeled for us in the very first man. So often men really struggle with stepping up leading their homes, taking spiritual initiative. And then they just step back and allow their wives to do that. And then the wives say, well, somebody has to do it. So I'm just going to do it. And then both are not doing the roles that they've been called to do. And then it becomes less effective than the way that God has intended it. So Adam's standing there with Eve. And I think that's why it's written that way for us, is that Eve takes it, she eats it, and then she says, here, Adam. And Adam goes, okay, I'll eat it too. 
instead of standing up and saying, no, my role is to protect and to cherish you, and this is wrong, and this is going to hurt you, and I'm not going to let it happen. Now, notice there's, there's, not this, there's not this passing the buck of like, well, Adam wouldn't have eaten at first, and so Eve is actually the sinner. Like, actually, Paul talks about very differently in Romans when he says that all sin entered the world through who? One man, the man Adam. So he's harsh there, right? He goes, Adam, you are solely responsible for bringing sin into this world, even though Eve is the one that ate first. So what Paul's not doing is he's not anti-woman here and going, well, Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't. Actually, what commentators are saying is because of the wording, so let's go back to 1 Timothy, because of the wording in this, that he's actually being more harsh to Adam because he's saying Eve was deceived. Um, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Commentators basically universally agree with this, that Adam willingly sinned. He wasn't deceived, he just... He just willingly did it. And so the responsibility then falls to him. And so then you have these different responsibilities or, or, or consequences that fall from God, right? Is, is the earth was supposed to be easy to work. We were supposed to be at one kind of with nature. We weren't going to have conflict, all these things. And then, and then what's the consequence that he gives women? That women childbirth was, was going to be in God's design painless. I haven't given birth. Anybody? Sorry, that's not funny. Um, obviously, right? Ex- excruciating. Uh, I watched a video once. This is just for men's, uh, I guess for women's enjoyment more than men's. Is they, anybody seen this where they hooked up the electrodes on the men and they like showed what it would be like to, to experience the pain of childbirth? Anybody seen that? That is well worth your three minutes of time. That's hilarious. Right? The point being is that women are a lot tougher than men in that sense. Um, in this text here now, he's saying, right, so Adam was not deceived. Adam now has a responsibility. And Paul says, all sin entered the world through one man. So because Adam sinned, all men now stand guilty before a holy God. Is Paul anti-woman? No, I don't think so. I think what Paul's trying to create here is this order of, of we call it in, in Christianity, we call it headship, is that men were created to spiritually lead and protect and care for. And so when you read in Ephesians 5 that men are to love their wives, what's the example used? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That love is meant to be a sacrificial love that there is nothing. So men, I'm speaking to you right now. Is there is nothing that you should not do to protect your wife, that you would sacrifice your very life for if you have to, not even if you have to. If, if that comes across, that, that that's just what you will do because you love that woman so much. This idea of submission has been hijacked by our culture. And as soon as we see the word submit, we go, I don't like that word. That word implies weak. It implies um, not as not as important or not as special or whatever. And and again, we've hijacked that word in our culture. The actual Greek word for submission is, is a military term of strength of someone self-sacrificing for the greater good of somebody else. In the book, The Meaning of Marriage, written by uh, Tim, Timothy and uh, Kathy Keller, Kathy Keller writes a book or a chapter in that book on submission. 
And she takes it back to Philippians chapter 2, where she says, Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father and died for us on the cross, right? Submitted to the will of the Father to death, even death on a cross. So is that weak? Was Christ dying on the cross weak? Like we would never say that, not a chance. We look at that as that's the greatest albeit most painful, but the greatest moment in human history because now we can find salvation, we can find redemption, and we can find eternity with God because of what Christ did. And in fact, the whole context of Philippians chapter 2 is to show Christ's equality with the Father, and he didn't consider it something to be grasped or held onto, but willingly gave up and surrendered himself. It's not an issue of value. He says, I'm going to submit to the will of the Father even though I hold equality with the Father because this is what needs to happen and he gives himself up for us on the cross. So Kathy Keller writes, if Christ can submit to the Father, then certainly I can submit to my husband. Because when we understand submission correctly, all it is is a willing sacrifice of saying that person I will self-sacrifice, they will be more important and I will serve them. It's no different than what God called men to do in Ephesians 5. Love your wife the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's no difference. We are to elevate the other person. We are to surrender ourselves so that they become more important. Not in a sense of value, but in a sense of if, if, I, if I ever at home think, man, it can be very easy to do this, man. If I think my ideas are more important than my wife's, what happens? Become domineering. Become pretty dismissive. I become pretty unaccepting of the role that she has to play in our life and that she has value and merit to that. We're not called to be domineering. We're, we're called to sacrifice ourselves for our spouses. Matt Chandler said it this way. Is he said, looking at biblical submission and looking at the role of authority of men over women in his home, he goes, my role is if there's a moment where I have to say, no, this is what God has called of us. This is what we're going to do. He's going to do that. And so he says he lets his wife win every little battle because those battles don't matter. But if there's a big thing, that has to be done. That's an issue of what God's called him to do. He says he knows. He has the responsibility as the man in that home to step forward and say, I'm going to do this. So he said he's never once picked what car they bought, what color it is, where they, their house that they bought, any of those things. I'm not saying that's necessarily exactly the strategy you should approach. I'm just, it's interesting thought. Is he looked at this and went, there will come a time when I have to do this, when I have to say yes or no to something that my wife wants differently but for the sake of our family, for the sake of our spiritual lives moving forward, I'm going to have to. And so I don't need to win any of these other battles because none of them are important. I think that's what self-sacrifice looks like. So that's what submission is. That's what headship is. So why does he say, I do not per permit a woman to speak or to exercise authority over a man? She is to remain quiet. Well, there's two views here. One is that it's overly... Uh, culturalized to the fact that he's saying these women from this church in Ephesus or from the community in Ephesus have come in and and they're the ones causing the divisive teaching they're the ones that are bringing in destructive teaching and stuff and so so they need to be quiet and so Paul's asking to be quiet it makes great logical sense except for the fact that that's never said in fact the only time it's said that there's people doing that he names three individuals and they're all men so I think that's making the text say something it doesn't say 
Logically, we could probably make our way around that and make it seem good, but I just don't think it works. Um, one commentator explains it this way. He says, Paul's not demanding physical silence, but rather a teachable spirit. And I think that's the best way to interpret and understand this, is that if headship exists, if God's created men first and men to have a role and women second and women to have a role to work together complementarian-wise to fulfill the same goal, the same purpose, if that's the case, then he's saying, women, you need to have a teachable spirit with men. You need to respect that they are in authority over you, not because they're better, not because they're more value, but because God's ordained them to this role. Now, again, let me clarify, we're talking about the context of corporate worship. So the complementarian role does not state that women are incapable of being the president of a company or the CEO of a company or, or run their business well. Or, like we're not talking in that scheme of things. We're talking in corporate worship. This is how God's ordained things to work. So there's, there's a context to that. It's not about value. It's about role. Lastly, verse 15. There's three predominant views about this. And admittedly, this is a confusing one. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's a couple of things you'll see in there. Is one, she will be saved through childbearing. Is there ever any place else in Scripture where it says anything about finding salvation apart from the blood of Jesus Christ? No, never. So when you read that, you go, okay, hold on, I've got to be misunderstanding that. Second thing, yet she, and then there's a little hyphen, if they, if she yet they, what's happening here? Why is it going from singular to plural? So these are the three predominant views. The first view uh, is that women will be kept, uh, Christian women, pardon me, will be kept safe through childbearing. Well, statistically, that just doesn't add up. Plenty of godly women have died during childbirth in our history. Not only that is um, from a theological standpoint, um, salvation is not about being kept safe, but being delivered from sin. That's just simple. Is if, you're, if you're coming to Christ so that you no longer have problems in the world, you're coming to Christ for the wrong reason. Because we will have problems, Jesus said it himself. We come to Christ because we need saving for eternity. Life will find purpose and meaning, and Jesus also says it'll get hard and more difficult because people don't want you to follow him. So that view, I just think, from a logical and a theological standpoint, doesn't work. The second view is that women will find salvation in bearing children. It doesn't work either, does it? From a logical standpoint, what about the woman who is unable to conceive? Now she can't find salvation. But according to, well, 1 Corinthians 5 is the example, but many... Didn't Jesus die for all so that all would find salvation? Didn't we just read last week that it's God's desire that all would be saved? If that's God's desire, and then he goes, but I'm only going to let those select few who are capable of meeting this criteria. What about Shayla? She hasn't conceived we have a child, but no, adoption doesn't count. So she's out. Just for the record, Shayla, I'm not saying that. That's the belief, right? Is, is, and I just don't think that works. I think from a logical and theological standpoint is Christ died for all and the only thing according to Scripture that we can do to find salvation is repent and believe. 
There's no act. There's no work. There's no moment of, oh, you gave birth to a child. You're good. You haven't. Sorry, you're not. It just doesn't make sense. Third view is that women, so I'm going to read this carefully so that you understand, that women will be saved through the birth of the child, referring to Christ. Again, I think context becomes crucial, and what Paul's trying to say is going back to Genesis to define headship and to define role, then defines this as well, because Genesis 3.15, we read the first prophecy of Christ. In that, we read that the woman will conceive and that this child will be the Messiah, and then there's this imagery given of the serpent will come and the Messiah will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. It's the first messianic prophecy in the Bible in that same context where Paul's quoting about the fall of man. So I think all that's happening here is that Paul's saying this woman Mary, through bearing a child, though it was painful, though it was difficult, that because she was faithful to what the angel called of her, she then gave birth to the Messiah, who now, according to Scripture here, right, now he's lived, he's died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he's given us the Holy Spirit, and he has brought salvation to all mankind through one woman. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that Mary is of any more value or importance than any other woman, but it does mean that's pretty amazing. John Stott says it this way, so then, even if certain roles are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent their position, they and we must never forget what we owe to a woman. If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, or the, yeah, the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to woman than in the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And that's why I think you have, yet she if they, going from singular to plural, Mary to everyone. So when we read a text like this, and, and, and maybe I haven't covered it sufficiently for you, and, and if you have other questions, by all means, you're welcome to come and, and talk with me. But it seems then to me in this text, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to say, here's how I've ordained, here's how God's ordained, pardon me, how the church is to run and what the goal of it is. And so as we move forward here in this discipleship model, this discipleship mentality, uh, this Thursday morning at 6 a.m., we're meeting together with whatever men are here because we want to pray and we want to read Scripture because we believe we are called to lead the church. It doesn't mean that we are more capable or that we have more ability. It means God said, this is your role. I, I want you to fulfill it. So we're going to step out and do that. So men, if you're here Thursday at 6 a.m., women, you're not being talked down to. You're not being told you don't have value or you don't have merit or you don't have purpose. You're not told you can't pray in the church. You're not told that you can't have a function. And in fact, Paul argues in Corinthians about and Titus and uh, Peter does and Peter about the ways in which women do teach within the church. So that is there. Our understanding from a complementarian view is that there's only two things that are ordained for men. There's the eldership of the church and the lead teacher 
of that church. Not because, again, not because better or worse, but because this is what God has chosen from, from the creative order. And so that's what, how we endeavor to live this out. So I hope and understand that, I hope you understand from our local body context, there's never an issue of value because every person, every single person here was created in the image of God and loved desperately by him. And Jesus was sent to the cross so that all of us could find salvation. There's no value issue. We're all so valuable to God that he sent Jesus to die for us. There's no difference between men and women that way. We just believe that God has asked men to do certain things in the church, and God's asked women to do certain things. I hope that makes sense. Let me pray as we close, and then we're going to spend a few moments here in communion together. God, admittedly, this is a difficult text and, and one that can have our backs up against the wall really quickly. God, I pray that this has been clear. God, if I've said anything that isn't consistent with what the rest of the Word of God says, would you just correct that in our hearts and our minds and help us to understand what you have called us to do? God, would you, would you call men to step up in their homes and in the church. To lead not because they're more qualified, but because you have called them to be the example. God, would you help women in our church to understand this issue of submission is, is not about value or weakness, but that it's about submission to you. because you have ordained these roles the way that you have laid them out for us in Scripture. And God, at the end of all of this, we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all. As it says in Corinthians, once for all mankind. God, what a blessing that is to know that we are loved unconditionally by the creator of all things. We could find no more value than that. So God, now as we shift from, from this into a time of communion, we want to remember, we want to slow down and we want to remember the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. So God, as we spend the next few minutes reading, from the text and, and taking and passing these elements out and holding them? Would this not just be some ritual that we do once a month, but would it be something where we intentionally slow our minds and our hearts down so that we can see the things that really matter? So that we can understand the depth of your love for each one of us. God, we love you and we thank you for this. Amen. So those who are helping with communion can come up and those, the rest of us, we can turn to 1 Corinthians just a few pages back. Uh, 11.23 says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we gather together as a corporate church, as the body of Christ, to remember there is nothing that God didn't do to bring us salvation. The depth of his love for us is something we cannot define. But the cost was something that we can never understand. So in these moments, as we hand this out, as, as you hold the elements in your hand, let's do some evaluation in our own hearts and ask, and ask God what he would have us do, how he would have us live. If there's things that we need to repent of, if there's things that we need to get right with God, then let's do that. All the while with this, this united mind at the center of this is that we are called to be a church who loves each other and will go and make disciples. That's our goal. That God would receive honor and glory so that others would see our good deeds and not look at us, but that they would look back to the Father and praise Him for it. So let me pray for this and then we'll hand out the bread. God, as we pass this out and as we consider the price that was paid for our salvation. Only the blood of Jesus, only his death could pay that penalty. God, as we've just discussed, thank you that Jesus was willing to submit himself to the Father, even though equality was something that he had. But he chose to humble himself to death on a cross. God, would that impact our hearts and our minds as we consider what that means for the love that you have for us. So God, we thank you for this. We thank you for what you have done. Amen.